In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, well, well, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody is having a beautiful Friday. I hope that you're in the arms of the people you love or you're at least surrounded by them or they're next to you or you're thinking about them. Hope the sun is shining and the birds are singing. I have an incredible guest here today and I'm really, truly thankful to, to be in his presence and get to, get to share with him some cool stories and I hope that everyone... I don't hope, I know that the people who listen to this will be as just as inspired as I am. So let me introduce Adam Garfinkel. He's a he's the fractional CFO, uh, business development professional, leading figure in the capital markets, a well-known venture capitalist, a leader, a mentor, and a father, and someone who has a giant spotlight that can shine it on the path of which people can walk down when they feel they are faced with trauma. Adam so stoked you're here today. How are you today, my friend? Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Doing good. Doing good. Nice. I am. Um, yeah, it's it's such a beautiful, interesting time that we live in, but it's not without tragedy. And one thing that I have noticed in this area that we're living in right now is that I think that there's people, I think the one Ariadne thread that kind of ties us all together is this idea of trauma. Like we all go through it and so many people suffer and they don't know there's people there to help. And you may have gone through huge traumas and the guy next to you has gone through the same trauma, but we don't talk about it. It's been pushed down for so long. And I was just kind of wondering if maybe you could begin with a little introduction in your origin story. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if I go back too far, <laughs> um, it'd be really boring. Right, uh, right. So, um, but you know, basically had a had an ideal childhood. You know, I I never had the the uh, the um, the big childhood trauma or anything like that. You know, pretty pretty normal stuff. Um, I uh, my career has been mostly investment banking. Worked in in the hedge fund industry, private equity, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think I, I've gotten much more active on LinkedIn about six months ago. Um, really uh 
I was very impacted um, because of the journey that I was on with my son Nick, and and unfortunately, um, you know, this 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 turned from what you know was potentially a happy ending to a very sad ending. Um, so, you know, I, I could probably start when, you know, with, with Nick, we we um, we've been on a journey together because when he was in his teens, he was diagnosed with uh, major depressive disorder. And it wasn't for many years that we actually discovered that he was treatment resistant because no doctor even brought up that term. We, we had no idea what it meant. We went down the traditional psychopharmacology route where, um, you know, once he was able to express in his teens, like something's not right. I don't feel good. I think I'm depressed, um, which later on he, he said, you know, that it really started when he was his earliest memories, four or five, six years old, but he didn't have the words to express it. He didn't know what, he didn't know why he felt different, but he struggled his whole life. So we, you know, went to a psychologist, psychiatrist, they started him on traditional SSRIs, traditional medication. And, and, you know, for many people, they probably understand you, you take the meds for, and they'll say, you know, it takes four to six weeks to kick in and then you'll start feeling good. Well, that didn't happen. And then they would increase the dose and nothing would happen. And then they would say, okay, we're going to add this. And then we're going to increase the dose of that. And after about 12 weeks, they say, okay, that medicine didn't work. So we're going to wean off and we're going to start with something else. That's the trial and error process that occurs. That's, you know, in more than, I don't know what it's been, 50, 60, 70 years, nothing much has changed in psychopharmacology. And um, so we did that literally for years, you know, age 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And all that time he just suffered. And, um, and, and I think over time he suffered worse. Uh, he went off to college and, you know, couldn't really uh, get through a, a, a freshman year. Um, I'm sure he did have the typical, you know, freshman year fun and, and join a fraternity and all that, but he couldn't get to class, couldn't get out of bed at times, um, you know, combining, you know, academics with, with uh, the fraternity um, challenges wasn't going to work for him because he just didn't have the capacity to do that. So um, we, at, at this point in time, we still don't know basically how, how do we, how do we handle this? What do we do? And thought, okay, take a semester off. He loves, he's loves snowboarding, you know, go out to Vail, work at, work at, out in Vail and, and you'll be out in nature and all these people having fun on the slopes and you'll snowboard and, and um, of course, that didn't work either because, you know, he was he, he had something that was not right that um, and unfortunately, to this day, we, we really never figured out, you know, what or, or why. Um, but then in his uh, kind of in his second, he tried going back to school again, um, just still suffering. And he without telling me at first came across uh, psilocybin via, you know, magic mushrooms. And there was a mycologist uh, in, in the town that he was, it was in Boone, North Carolina, which is a bohemian kind of, you know, hippie town, really cool. And so he, he could access that, of course, not legally. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when he started telling me about it, I was first very scared. I, I, I didn't understand what, 
what that was. I didn't understand psilocybin. I, all I knew was that mushrooms were something that happened in the 60s and 70s. A lot of people got in trouble and, and you know, it's a, you can become a drug addict. And, and so, but he convinced me that this was therapeutic. It was a medicine. It was actually helping him. Hmm. Um, and then I got on board and was like, okay, you know, what, whatever you need, let's make sure you can get it and try to get it in, in a way that's safe and, and, you know, under the radar. Um, and unfortunately he became resistant to psilocybin. So what initially he would get this glimpse of what relief was like and to feel, you know, good. And, and he would tell me like, it's, it's unbelievable. Not only the journey itself, but afterwards, just the, yeah. the, the release of all that dark cloud and the ability for your brain, your thoughts to slow down and be able to live in the moment. And then, it just stopped. And, uh, you know, whether it was microdosing, whether it was, you know, he, he, he took some amazingly heroic doses <laughs> because we didn't know what else to do and it just didn't work. And, um, he was still in North Carolina. I had moved out to California in early 2016 and, and then kind of came out to, to, to San Diego and, and, um, Again, we went and saw psychiatrists and psychologists and, and did, uh, you know, they, they would do brain images and all these things to try to figure out what's going on. And we just couldn't get an answer. At that time, we didn't really uh, know anything more about the psychedelic community. This was 2018 or so. And then in 2019, kind of like at the end of our rope, um, he learned about ayahuasca and... Uh, started to educate me about it, and we started to do research early in 2019. And we, we, um, you know, there was there's not as it wasn't as prolific as as it is now, but there there were plenty of of retreats. Um, and we thought if it's if it's indigenous to Peru, then let's go to Peru. So we started learning uh, more about it and interviewing different retreats, and and we found one and and decided let's go through, you know, do three weeks. You know, they offered one, two and three weeks and, and figured we'll, we'll, we'll do that. So he went to the retreat. I, I went down to South America while he was there, just so I was on the continent. And, um, and he had what would be, and, and when he went, he was really in really bad shape. Um, like, you know, at the end of his rope. And he had what, what he would call a life-changing experience, very profound experience, but it was also very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, it was emotionally hard, physically hard. And when I say that, you know, you, you talk to people that have gone down the ayahuasca path and that's, that's not uncommon, um, the purging, and, but his was exceptionally hard and um, more difficult than the others that were there and where some had euphoric experiences and where you know he described one guy it was a, a leopard running through the jungle and, and and it was you know amazing and i met some of the some of the people that he had gone with after we, we went to machu picchu and we spent some time with with some of his colleagues and um and i could tell their experiences were different but what he he did and and this was pretty intense in three weeks he did 12 ayahuasca ceremonies Whoa. 5-MEO. Whoa! They did the 
can't remember what it is where they they burn the something into like your sage skin. or incense. Oh, they burn something into your skin. Well, they they burn your skin with these dots, and I don't, I don't know if it was like the 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 frog venom or something. Mm. Uh, I, I can't remember. They did a sweat, you know, a sweat thing, and and um, and he, uh, you know, he he felt like it was a life changing experience. It gave him hope, and what the I think the most amazing thing that I remember him telling me was that he saw another realm he saw another dimension that was very impossible to describe with words but he said it was peaceful and beautiful yeah. and that he believed that that was the place where we all go and we're all interconnected now i don't know you know necessarily what that means or or how you know i i've not, i've not been there so i don't know but the way he described it he didn't have faith because faith i think is something where you you're believing in something that that there's no evidence or proof i guess maybe one way to describe it he was certain he was <laughs> certain um that this existed that's where we went and that things were better and he told me like i'm not afraid to die um it's you know it, it it's it's just this beautiful uh path and it's just part of our experience on this planet and who knows you know what what happens next but so so that gave him hope and it gave him uh, a desire to continue to live and a desire to want to spread the word and help others and um and really, that's where his passion started to kick in. And I started learning more about about that as well. And um, and when we got back to San Diego, what was what was difficult is trying to trying to keep that momentum going, because at that point we didn't know what to do. And, and we went back to, you know, the traditional, you know, psychiatrist. We, we did go to a mm. brain clinic. We went to all these different you know places and we, we landed on a doctor in Del Mar. His name is Rustin Burlow that started treating Nick with ketamine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he's the, he, if you go to his, his Yelp page or his Google page and you look at the, um, and you look at the reviews he has, you'll see one after the other people saying, Dr. Burlow saved my life. Dr. Burlow saved my life. It, it's really amazing. And that's, this is where we learned about ketamine and he, and Nick started getting treatment with ketamine and you, you know we've all heard the, the typical protocol of six kind of six treatments over a three-week period and dr burlow looks at everyone very individualistic very unique and bespoke and and, and mm -hmm. the protocol with nick was different he he extended that out and in addition to ketamine he uses tms in conjunction mm -hmm. with it so there were times when nick was actually receiving an IV ketamine and receiving PMS at the same time, vagus nerve stimulation, other type of brain stimulation techniques, um, and talk therapy. So it was, you know, all that combination that, that and he used the term layering is, is what Dr. Grillo. I like that. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it really extended out over about a 12 week period. And it also included ECT. So Nick, had electroconvulsive therapy as well. Mm. So he was 
poked, prodded, shocked, you know, and I remember we'd go to the hospital about at, at, at first, like three days a week for his ECT and he was just zapped, you know, and, and for the next 24, 48 hours, it was, uh, you know, pretty, you know, just, he was just wiped out. Um, but what happened was over that period of time, basically it got to a point where he, he was able to, he was motivated and he wanted to, to move on. And, and what was the next step? And he, he had a friend that was working on a ranch in Montana, a resort, and who, who, you know, invited him to come apply for a job. And, and, um, in, in 20, uh, 21, early 20. So we went and, and we went through the pandemic together, mm. which was challenging too. And that's actually when we, we learned about, um, the, the other ketamine, uh, the, uh, lozenge ketamines because, mm-hmm. You know, nothing was available. So we, so Nick did lozenge ketamine where he was counseled by Lauren Taus, which is an amazing therapist in Los Angeles who has this incredible practice. And um, and she educates other therapists as well. Um, and she she did, you know, she really Nick was very fond of Lauren and and, um, you know, got considerable value out of out of that treatment. But um early 2021 he went off to montana and and worked on the ranch for about 10 months and um and was not receiving any type of treatment so you know he was not on any type of medication um i think it would have been beneficial if he was able to have ketamine while he was there but he was in the middle of nowhere in montana um so but he 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 he, for the first time he, he held a job he worked he he had a social network um you know, it was a really great experience for him. And, um, but after about 10 months, he, he, uh, you know, I think it was probably a combination of things, but one that, that he couldn't access ketamine there, I think was, was pretty challenging. It, it, you know, makes me more, made me more aware of, of the lack of access that's available, you know, for, for many people, for many different reasons. And, um, so he came back and uh, and he he the war had broken out in uh, Ukraine and he was overwhelmed with the desire that he needed to go help and he didn't want to go to the front lines and in, in battle but but he wanted to help the refugees and mm. he he established a GoFundMe campaign yeah. and um, found a found a buddy in in San Diego and they they met. Um, a nonprofit called the House of Ukraine that was established in San Diego, who were, were having trouble getting the goods into the right hands when they mm. sent it over. And these were both medical supplies and clothing. And, um, and, and basically, if they had someone that could physically take them there, they, they know they could get them there. So he worked with the House of Ukraine. Um, there was also a benefactor in San Diego. I don't know who it was, but supplied six drones and they brought all this stuff over there british airways was kind enough not to charge them for the exit baggage and they literally drove the drones into ukraine and handed them to the ukrainian military whoa that's, yeah. a, that's out of control man i love it it's amazing i was it tracking is. yeah i was tracking them on my you know on my phone like he, he he made sure he gave me access to his location and i would see him waiting at the you know, see his blue dot sitting yeah. there 
check the lake <laughs> at the border and then you know for an hour and then i see it slowly going across right um and he what he he ended up doing amazing things he did some volunteer work <laughs> with the um world central kitchen and uh in poland and then he he would go back to uh to uh krakow get more supplies drive it into ukraine he stayed at a elementary school inside the border where refugees were being housed yeah. and and um and it was there for about i don't know four or five six weeks um and it was a it was although it was very inspirational and and he was he was living out this dream to help these people it was also challenging for him that mm. what he, he didn't see the, the front lines but he saw these people that were displaced from their homes that had uh loved ones that were killed uh that were grieving um just a a, a magnitude of humanity um and it wore on him and yeah. you know he he, he called me uh, once <laughs> said I, I i really need to come home i you know i i, I don't want to leave but i I don't think this is good for me to continue to see all this sorrow and pain. And even though he was helping so many people, um, so he ca he came back, and um, and so you know, one of the things that that unfortunately you know happened is is we we realized that the his psychedelic therapy and treatment got him to that point. Um, but nothing like the psilocybin, nothing really uh, provided him the relief that's, that many people receive that you hear about and read about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to, to, to make people aware that while we're, while we're very excited about this new potential and how these compounds, molecules can, can help so many people, which he definitely believed and was an advocate because he saw it happen in front of his eyes with other people, unfortunately, they didn't work for him necessarily. And that will always remain a mystery. We, we don't know why. And we tried to figure out why. And, and so with everything that we tried and did, whether it was, you know, psilocybin, ayahuasca, you know, in ceremony with shamans and, and um, an extremely qualified psychedelic therapists um to more traditional therapists dmt 5meo dmt um mdma you know we we i think we went down every path except for ibogaine is mm. the only psychedelic compound that we didn't pursue um and unfortunately it just never provided him the relief whatever what his body chemistry and makeup was um and part part of my story is in 20 uh 2022 you know 2021 2022 out of the pandemic you know i had my own challenges um you know as a father watching mm -hmm. your son struggle it's very challenging and and you know it was it's heartbreaking that i could not fix you know the issue everything we did i i, I couldn't get him healthy and so that in itself w w was difficult. Um, I had come out when I came out to San Diego, I worked for uh, this high flying, uh, you know, fintech company, private company, and, and for a variety of reasons beyond everyone's control, it didn't work out. So that was a disappointment and I had a failed relationship. So I was going into my own, uh, you know, challenges psychologically, mentally. And um, 
and I didn't reach out for help. I, I really held it in and did not um, um, do what I should have done and right. what I would encourage other people to do. And I isolated myself and I got to a point where finally I, I was, it was getting to the point where if I didn't reach out for help, you know, things weren't, you know, it was going to get really bad. Um, I ended up going to, to the doctor that, that Nick went to. Um, so in a way, Nick, Nick, uh, created this path for me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, um, and I'm the other side of the spectrum from what Nick experienced. So my second, after my second ketamine treatment, I woke up the next morning and the cloud that had been covering me for the last 18 months, those negative thought patterns that were going yeah. through my head where I was constantly thinking about the past and decisions I made that should have done something different, that right. sort of thing. And then anxious about the future. So that repetitive, you know, pattern that I could not get out of was gone. And I, I woke up that, that morning and, and, and thought like, what, you know, what's going on? Why, why do I feel different? Um, you know, I, it was nothing for me, nothing less than miraculous. It was a miracle because when you're, when you're in that, and I know a lot of people, you know, have that similar situation so they can relate to it and suddenly it's gone. Wow. And so, so I'm, I'm in that camp where, where, and, and, you know, there's arguments about whether ketamine is a true psychedelic, whatever. I don't really care. Right. <laughs> All I know is that it saved me and, and it did it really fast. And, um, and then during my third treatment, I remember I was overwhelmed with this just desire, need, um, uh, you know, just this feeling that I've got to tell people about this, that more people need to know about this. More people need to be healed by this, or at least given the opportunity. Right. And, um, and tears started flowing down my, mm. my face. And, and, and I just, from that moment on, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is my mission. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I had no idea. I was the guy, you know, you read a lot of stuff. It's neuroscience, it's chemistry. It's, you know, um, I was the guy who always, uh, you know, set the chemistry lab on fire and, <laughs> you know, that was, was so foreign for me. So, so I, um, but I, I just started to network on, on LinkedIn, uh, incredible tool. Yeah. And originally just went out to my existing network and I wasn't very active on LinkedIn, but I had my existing network was mainly financial services. And I just said, you know, very, I was very open with my experience with Nick myself and said, look, this is, this is my mission now. So if you can please, you know, connect me to people, you know, that might be in this space. And then suddenly, you know, I got a ping here and a ping there and a text and an email and it was really interesting how many people that I had no idea might have connect connection to the space suddenly yeah. had connection to the space. And then it just started to grow exponentially, my, my network. And I started meeting uh, company founders. I started meeting VCs that were investing in these companies. And I recognize, okay, maybe there is a place for me here where I could utilize the skills that I've developed over my career and apply them to this space. And just started 
I, I volunteered with a couple organizations, the Ketamine Task Force, the Psychedelic Access Fund, and then started doing pro bono work. Anyone that wanted help with anything financial related, I just said, I'll, I'll do it. And it got to a point where, um, you know, founders that are in need of raising capital, um, some of them are, are, are extremely brilliant scientifically, but they just haven't had the experience of raising capital. It's something I did my whole career. So I helped, you know, organize their presentations and, and, um, and make introductions and, and it really grew from there. And now I have, you know, essentially a, a, a business that, um, is assisting different components of the ecosystem. And, and so I found a place where I could add value, um, uh, and and I'm hoping that what I can do is is bring capital to companies and founders and scientists and that are well intended that and the capital is aligned with the mission and um, and I've I've also you know seen and I put a post up a probably a couple months ago on LinkedIn where I've seen um, you know what we're experiencing now in the psychedelic space where it's it's there's a there's a euphoria i think the bubble yeah. got popped a little bit already but there was this uh incredible euphoria and a lot of capital flowing especially when rates were zero and capital was free and 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 but i've seen this happen many times in different uh uh different sectors of the, of the marketplace over my 37 year 37 years yeah, yeah. um of business and um and I saw similar things happening where uh, fast money was coming in, just looking for a fast exit, which in some cases actually did work early on, but that's not the case anymore. Um, less intended people were getting access to money, and yeah. and um, and that and that's really a shame because those that really need the money that are doing the great things then have less availability to it, and 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 um, but. There's a ton of great people. I've never met more uh, generous, kind, empathetic uh, group of people in my whole career is within this community. Um, and uh, you know, and then the sad end of the story is that 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 Nick continued the struggle, and things just kept getting more and more difficult and challenging. And um, we had a lot of conversations you know, about, um, you know, he, 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 again, expressed to me that, that he wasn't afraid to die, um, that he was in so much pain and it's almost like we just ran out of resources. We just, you know, there were, there was nothing left. I don't know if, 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 if it was pur purposeful or accidental, I, I, I'll never know that, but, um, I know he's at peace and I know he's in that place that he described to me and he's out of pain. And so if there's any, you know, anything that helps me through this is that, um, you know, I don't, I don't have to see him suffer. Unfortunately, I, I, you know, I don't see him. I'm, I'm heartbroken and, and, uh, and sad. And, um, I, uh, I'm devastated and I miss him so much. And this is his shirt that I wear. Yeah. He, one of his many shirts that he, uh, he, he loved the, uh, the tie dye look. And so I, I honor him now by, by, by wearing his, his clothing, which is a little baggy on me because he was a bigger guy. 
but I can still feel them and, and smell yeah. them. And, um, and so now I'm, I was already motivated. Now I, I just, um, I know this can help more people. I know that this is a solution that will be embedded in our, in our, uh, medical framework. I believe that, um, that we lost so many years of, of R and D from 1970 to whatever the mid nineties, 2000, and now it's happening again. And I think we need to make sure we're responsible, um, uh, around, uh, you know, the hype and it doesn't work for everybody and, or, or maybe we're just not there yet. We don't have enough information to understand that, but, um, um, that's, that, that's my story, man, man. It's, it's, it blows me away. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I, I, I think there's a component that we kind of danced around. It's this idea of a revealed spiritual nature that begins to grow inside of us. And, you know, when I, when I hear you talk about Nick and like, even though he may not be there with you now, like he has inspired so much help for so much more people, you know, his spirit, However, we want to define spirit. Maybe people define it as an energy. People define it as someone they see. It's defined so many ways. But I think it is imperative for people to understand the connection between psychedelics and spirituality. If you do psychedelics, you can't not begin to see the spiritual nature unfold. And if if you you could say that Nick is no longer with us, or you could say now he's only begun to begin his mission. Like look at just look at what you've accomplished because of him in the last six months. Look at the people that you've inspired. Look at the light you've shown on doctors like Rustin Barlow or you know Laura Taos. Like and, and think about like our Prema is just talking to us now and he's like Adam is so awesome. Like <laughs> you know and and every time somebody says Adam is awesome, what they're really doing is they are speaking highly of the spirit of Nick. And it, look at if he wouldn't have gone through those things then maybe another kid would have had to. If yeah. he didn't go through those things with you, then maybe yeah. a different father would have had to. Maybe someone that didn't have the ability to do what you did. Maybe, maybe, and you know what, Adam, there's kids out, kids and fathers out there right now that are probably battling trying to figure out their relationship. Maybe the story you tell helps five kids out there, helps five fathers cope with yeah. something, helps them come up with an idea. Like, and you know as well as I do, when you spoke about how these kind of traumas can damage relationships with your other loved ones and isolates everybody. And then there's this guilt because you're like, Oh my God, I'm not paying attention to that. Yeah. And then Nick feels that my son ocean, like our families feel that we suffer together. And even though someone may not be here with us physically, I think it's, it's unfair to say that they're not here because the spirit is here and they may be larger than ever. Now, you know, it could be a transition that we go through where we can move forward and help people. And when I hear the language, like it's a beautiful place, I'm supposed to be there. Maybe that pain is a siren call calling people to the other side because they're needed there. You know, and I, I know that that sounds metaphysical, but I believe that with all of my heart, Adam. And I, I believe that the people that, you know, in Hawaii, we have this saying that says we're all ancestors in training. And I don't know how prayers are answered, but I do know that they are. Some pray to Buddha, some pray to Muhammad, some pray to God. But I'm telling you, there's a force bigger than you can understand, and it's helping us move through this. And I think it's stories like this. Having the courage to tell a candid story that you know wounds you every time you tell it, 
maybe every time it wounds you, it strengthens somebody else. And I, I, I love it, man. I'm so thankful that you talk about it because it's important. People are going through this. They need help. And it's just beginning. It's this next wave that's moving forward. And every one of us plays a role in moving forward. I, you know, let, me add, let me throw this question to you. You know, so as hard as that is to, to talk about that, and thank you for that, what are some of the gifts that you think have been provided to you since this has happened and how are you wielding them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and uh, so I, I really have to go back to um, what we talked about before the recording sure. is, is my daughter, Marissa, who was, um, you know, she was stillborn and um, she was, she was perfect. There was nothing wrong with her. There was a blood clot in the umbilical cord. That's, that's mm. what uh, caused oxygen couldn't flow. And, you know, when we were getting ready to deliver that happened and, and, um, and, uh, so out of that experience, which was extremely tragic, um, I, I started getting counseling from other bereaved parents that went through the, the exact same thing. And I would, I was told like, there will be gifts there. You'll receive yeah. gifts from, from, from her. That's and so hard I, to hear. It's so hard to believe that when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I want, and I want to acknowledge your, your, your child too, <sighs> Ocean, and, and you shared that with me and thank you for sharing your story with me. Yeah, of course. Um, but one of the things uh, that I was, I was taught, um, there's a number of things, but one of the first gifts I received, I would, um, and, and we had a, we had a, a formal funeral for Marissa, Nick, we had a celebration of life, which. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, but I remember I would go to the cemetery and we were in Atlanta at the time. And I would just wander the cemetery and you start looking at headstones and you see how many young people have passed away. And it made me think about um, how many other parents were we're struggling with it's not only babies because we she she was surrounded by probably 50 babies um in the cemetery but just you wander through and you see oh this person lived to 20 this person 15 this person 33 and it just overwhelmed me like you know what people don't always live their life their full life and they die young and it was the first time i really thought about that and it gave me this this ability it started to give me this ability to 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 be understanding of the tragedies that exist in our in our life day in day out they happen and if and if you haven't been touched by it you're just lucky yeah. because that's the reality the reality is these things happen and they happen greater than we can imagine unless you've been through it so that was that was one gift um and and then the other thing, obviously, was without that tragedy, Nick wouldn't have come into our world. It just wouldn't have happened. You know, mm -hmm. he, he wouldn't have been here. So so that was the greatest gift she, she could have given me. But, you know, I, I think um, she and the experience I went through um, over my grief process. And I was saying, like, when you lose a child um, at birth, people have have gone through a pregnancy with you, your families, your neighbors, your store clerks, your the dry cleaner guy, the waitresses, you know, everywhere you went for nine months or, you know, for the last 
I don't know, five or six months, yeah. you know, you're, you're sharing it, they're seeing it. And then when you come back and you're around town and people are just, saying, Oh, how's the baby? How's the baby? And then you have to explain what happened. Uh, it's gut wrenching. It's, um, it's painful. You find yourself consoling that person because they feel so bad they ask this question. But then the pain's so great, you just isolate because you don't want to go through that pain anymore. So it was a, it was really a couple of years process of of getting to a point where I could trust life again, and mm. and I was okay telling the story without being so devastated. And um, and then Nick came to us during that period of time, which going through that second pregnancy was was horrific Ooh. in itself um the worry and concern um but uh you know that that process of knowing that grief is an individual experience that there is no time frame no timeline no right or wrong prepared me for what i'm going through now and knowing that i have the ability to do it however i want to without feeling any judgment um I, I've also been able to help others. I, I, I you know, along the way, over these many years, have have, you know, had opportunities to help other people that have gone through the process. And every everyone's experience is unique and different. But there's this bond hmm. when you lose a child <clears throat> that that you know you, that we have now. Yeah. Uh, that, that that other people that I've I've met. Um, you just instantly have that connection and um and it gives you the ability i believe to um to honor their grief and their sorrow and to have an understanding like 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 no one else so i um so she prepared me for what i'm going through right now and it's given me the strength to be able to speak out and make people aware of my situation nick's situation his story and and hopefully like you said um look if if, if i help one person that's yeah. that's all that matters if there's one father that would have compassion for their child you know boy or girl that that now can say instead of saying just get out of bed and go do this and and you know um you know pick yourself up by your bootstraps it just doesn't work that way and if i can educate more people and to have more compassion and empathy for this crisis we're in because when I think about <clears throat> young people or many of Nick's friends that spoke so beautifully at, at this celebration and talked about how he impacted their lives and, 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 and provided them with more meaning and knowing that, um, you know, we should be more kind and empathetic and caring. Um, that's what he did to them. And it was uh, amazing to hear them tell, tell this in front of this crowd of people that, that joined to celebrate Nick as we drank his favorite uh beer uh yeah sour monkey <laughs> ah! <laughs> at a brewery and, and celebrated his life because uh, that's how we wanted to remember him and um and i think you know there there um there's so many people that are struggling today especially young people because they've grown up with an iphone <laughs> They've grown up with Instagram and Facebook and, and they've grown up with war. Um, yeah. I remember as a kid seeing the, the, the news of Vietnam playing on TV. I remember the, the, the scrolling of the dates 
I guess that 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 disclosed the draft, you know, who draft numbers, mm -hmm. things like that. And this is in the late 60s, early 70s. But when that was done, there was almost I remember as I went off to college and when when our when we would talk about it in Vietnam, that it was almost like there'll never be another war because of the, you know, what the lessons learned from this horrific uh, conventional war. And now we have these nuclear weapons that can just blow things up. So so I kind of grew up thinking like, uh, well, that will never happen again. And then, you know, for kids that were born, like when my kids were born, all they've seen is war on TV from 9-11 on. It's yeah. just been war. And then you add in the iPhone and um, just the other stresses that have accompanied technology, which, I'm, you know, it's as, it's as great as it is bad. But I think it's just caused an incredible epidemic globally that um, and, and, and we're not able to treat it with the traditional means that has been used over the last 50 to 70 years. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any turning around. I think, you know, we're seeing the legislation that is being created in different states. There's a lot of challenges, you know, is the Oregon model, you know, correct? Is it, you know, there's been debates about now this first center came on and what they're charging for and in my view, I don't know what their economic model looks like, but I don't think they're overcharging. They're probably just they're embedded with with um, costs associated with licensing and regulation. And 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 I think they're probably charging a fair markup, but this is the cost associated with it. So um, I think as different uh, states start to look at the legislative process around legalization, we got to look at that. I, I don't know what the answer is, but um, what I do know is that there needs to be more access and mm -hmm. those without the means need to have access as, as, as great as those with the means. And, and that's not available today. So that's another thing I'm, I'm working on with, with the, with the nonprofits um, that I'm involved in the ketamine task force and also the psychedelic access fund um are 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 both trying to to really gain more access for those in need that's well said i you know i i'm very fortunate i get to talk to a lot of fascinating and passionate people and I, i've begun to see this new picture emerging or what it at least it looks like a new form to me and the form that i see the problem for access is that the people that really need it that really really need it can't afford it you know, my the people that have come back and have PTSD or, and are under a bridge or the people that can't even hold a relationship because they have that negative thought pattern in their mind that just won't shut up. Like, how do you get that there? In, in my mind, like there is licensing, there's all this stuff. But I think that you're going to see this is all if you just if you just look at it, there's this wave of optimization beginning to happen. And you're seeing neurofeedback paired with layered therapies of 5-MeO and ayahuasca together. And that's very expensive. But the people that have money to optimize, and it does optimize, I don't care what if you're an athlete, if you're in finance, or if you're a UPS driver, once you begin going down the path of optimization, I believe that these therapies move you into a higher cognitive level of being able to see things in a different way. And I think that the model of optimization, people that have money can pay for optimization. 
that money that can be funneled back to help people that need it. So I think it could subsidize there, whether it's Ibogaine for homeless people. But I think you're beginning to see people like uh, Nick Murray, who's got a spot in Jamaica, and he has got some incredible people. He had a he was part of the ESPN campaign that brought down people like Riley Coat and brought down people from the NFL that had traumatic brain injury. But he has state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology that's very expensive. But these are some people that are willing to pay for that. I think that if there was a, a, a model, there was a one-stop place that could you could funnel that money back and recycle into the people that needed it, I think that you're going to see the first wave is healing and then optimization, and it feeds back. And it's almost like the hero's journey, Adam. I'm like a big Joseph Campbell fan. You start off with trauma, then you move over here to the ideas of, of um, medicine and integration, and then you move up to optimization, and then you're right back to the healer, right? So it's almost like this full circle model. And I, I see it beginning to happen. It's like a spiral moving up, and it's not easy. It's not fast, but there are pathways coming. And I'm, I'm just so excited that there's people out there that are doing it. And I wanted to say on the topic of losing a child, there's really no, everyone will try to console you and they have great intentions. Don't be mad at them, even though you're upset. And there's not a whole lot of good advice you could get, but the, the best advice that I ever got when I lost my son was somebody pulled me aside and say, George, tell everybody, you know, go on your contact list, tell every single person, you know, and I remember just looking at him like, that's crazy. And I told him, like, that's that's ridiculous. And he goes, no, no. He's like, you don't get it. But you will have to relive that experience every time. And no matter how many people you tell, George, in a year from now, in two years from now, you're going to run into somebody that didn't know. And they're going to ask you about your son, and you're going to have to relive it. And, like, I get goosebumps thinking about it because, like, it's so true. When you have to relive that, man, you think yeah. you might think you're over something, man. But when you are confronted with it on an idle Tuesday at 4 p.m. at the beach – yeah. Do you know what I mean? So tell yeah. everybody, people. Just, I, I, just do it. I agree with you 100%. It's interesting. No one told me that um, when when we lost Marissa, but I, I kind of, it, it it then made sense to me. Yes. Like, um, because it was almost like I had to protect myself. And the way I protect yeah. myself is let everybody know because of those reasons that, that, that you just said. So it was yeah. kind of natural for me to share. I had already been very vocal about my story with Nick. And just so everyone knows, he, he was aware of that. We, we discussed how, you know, he wanted me to articulate his story because he wanted more people to know his story. So, um, I had his permission and, but, but I, I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, it's, it's, well, the, the other thing is it's just, this is life. And, yeah. and, um, why should we try to hide this versus anything else when we see people talk about getting a new job on LinkedIn or, you know, what, what, whatever might happen. And I think, um, you know, if, if, if people are get more comfortable with talking about it, cause I've, I've already, you know, had so many people that have been so amazingly supportive and compassionate and have, and have come to me and, and shared, um, <laughs> all right uh, I, sorry no minor man minor okay thank you <laughs> that's my mom yeah tell me i said hello yeah and uh so um uh you know it, and and then there's others that say like you know you're so strong how you know how can you do this and it, it's not a matter of strength it's it's really a matter of of um duty 
in mm -hmm. honor and to, to make people aware that what what my son's struggle was so that I can help the people he wanted to help, you know, which is basically anyone that has any type of struggle like this. So, yeah, I'm trying to get that story out and, and to make sure that more people understand it's OK to talk about it. You know, um, it's less it's more painful to, to have it all, you know, inside. Um, and, and back to your, you know, I, I, I've seen many examples of clinics that have sliding scale payment structures where, mm. you know, those that can pay more are subsidizing those that can't. And Dr. Burlow often um, charges zero to, for, for, for some patients um, just out of the, you know, the kindness of his heart. Right. And, um, uh oh, hold on. Yeah, no worries, man. No worries. Knock the uh, the electric out. All right. <laughs> um. So, so I think there's there's a lot of people out there that are doing great things and in, 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 in creating more awareness, um, but or more access. But it, uh, what I'm surprised about is there are not a lot, but there's a few people that have the ability to really influence something, write some really big checks in the, in the, in the scheme of things, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the, hmm. you know, the, the Lisa, uh, Laura Ja. I know they do wonderful things, Sure, uh, you know, and they, they, they have their passion projects, but I, I, thus far, I, I don't know that, that this community has, a champion of that magnitude yet right and i really love to see that happen where where an oprah winfrey uh a michael jordan what you know whoever anyone that's got a b behind their name <laughs> you know, write that kind of check uh you know and there's there's a lot of guys that that have m's behind them and hundreds of m's but but um I think that's what's really required. There's a there's an organization I'm getting involved in. I'm not sure if you're familiar. It's called Treat California, mm. and, and I don't recall the acronym. But basically, what it's doing is it's creating, uh, it's it's trying to get the signatures necessary to create a ballot initiative that would be voted on by the uh, the citizens of California to create a fund, a five billion dollar fund that would be allocated towards psychedelic research and development. In wow. The state of California. Yeah. So um, I'm uh, I'm I'm sorry I don't have, you know, uh, the, the, the actual. But if you if you Google treat California, uh, you'll learn more about it. And that's that can make a huge impact, you know, a number that big. And uh, I, I just think that. Uh, but what needs to happen is there actually needs to be money raised so that a firm can be hired to get a million wet signatures. So in order for the bat, the, the ballot initiative to occur, that's what needs to happen. And um, so, so they're in the process of raising that money right now, which I say, you know, look, it's really easy for me to spend Mark Zuckerberg's money, um, but he could write a check like that. You know, it, it's, it's like me going out for a steak dinner and, um, and that's what needs to happen. Sorry. helicopter. Yeah. No minor. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, um, if, if the community could get that type of advocacy from those type of, of, 
a philanthropist with that magnitude of capital, it can make a significant. You think about what Rick Doblin's done. Yeah. Uh, kind of cobbling together this money over a 35 year period. It's it's just uh, unbelievable. I, I and you see that guy all over the planet. Um, you know, he's a, he's he's such a, an amazing. He's been such an amazing advocate, and he's done so much. But you know, it's going to take even tens millions more dollars to get to the the end goal for for maps and so and they're struggling right now and given the economy's struggling but there's a lot of people out there i think that that could could help we just got to get to them and, and, and get them educated yeah and you know i live here in hawaii and there's a few people with bees behind them whether it's zuckerberg and Kauai or oprah and maui or larry ellison that lives in the four seasons over there i'm lanai you guys are all beautiful awesome people and i would encourage you if by some miracle you're listening to this and you have a B behind your name, I would hope you're inspired by a guy named Adam who has an N behind his name. And that N stands for Nick. I think there's some passion there, man. You know, I, are you okay on time? Do you have another minute? Um, yeah, let me just check. I'm sorry. Okay. No worries at all. If not, I can bring you back. I, I just had one another question that was that you brushed on, but we yeah, can touch on know, it later. I, I actually have a call with Prima. I know you do. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I just talked to him yesterday. You tell that yeah. guy I love his origin story. I mean, he's I really love cool. Prima, his partner Rose and Mochi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're awesome. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working with them right now and, and trying to bring their, their the dream stack. to reality. Yeah. The stack, man. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's unbelievable. Yeah. So ask, when you talk to Prema, ask him about his idea to use a 3D printer model type of um, graph. He'll, it'll blow you away. It's awesome. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Adam. I, I, I'll let you go. I, I, maybe next time we talk, we could talk a little bit about what it was like to have a conversation with your son about death. So many kids don't do that with their parents and you got to do it with him. I, I'm, I think that's another fruitful area we could discuss that may relieve trauma for a lot of people. Cause I don't know anybody that I've spoken to is, has been fortunate enough to do that. So I'll let you go. I love you, man. Thank you very, very Thanks, much for spending George. time with me today. I'll be yeah. in touch and, um, Aloha, yeah, I'd love to come back because of course. I want to make sure I, I want to work with you on getting that that B involved. Yes, let's do it, man. Let's right, do man. it. Thank you okay. so much. I'm grateful for your, uh, you know, for what you're doing and the access you're providing to so many great people. And um, just can't say enough about how grateful. Yeah, me too. Right back at you. I hope you have a phenomenal day, my friend. Thank you. And aloha to Nick. We love you, buddy. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You as well. Okay, okay. bye-bye. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. 
And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.